Welcome back to Into the Book. We're going to read chapter 4 today. Chapter 4, The Borderline Society. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Proverbs 29:18. States are as the men are. They grow out of human characters. From Plato's Republic. From the beginning, Lisa Barlow couldn't do anything right. Her older brother was the golden boy. Good grades, polite, athletic, perfect. Her younger sister, who had asthma, was also lavished with constant attention. Lisa was never good enough, especially in the eyes of her father. She remembered how he constantly reminded all three children that he had started with nothing, that his parents had no money, didn't care about him, and drank too much. But he had prevailed. He had worked his way through high school, college, and through several promotions at a national investment bank. In 1999, he made a fortune in the dot-com stock boom, only to lose it all a year later after some professional missteps. Lisa's earliest memories of her father were of her lying on the couch either sick or in pain, ordering Lisa to do one chore or another around the house. Lisa tried hard to care for her mother and to persuade her to stop taking the pain pills and tranquilizers that seemed to make her so foggy and distant. Lisa felt that if she was good enough, she could not only make her mother better, but also please her father. Though her grades were always excellent, even better than her brother's, her father always maligned her achievements. The course was too easy, or she could have done even better than a B plus or an A minus. At one point, she thought she might want to become a doctor, but her father convinced her that she would never make it. During Lisa's childhood and adolescence, the Barlows moved constantly from Omaha to St. Louis to Chicago, and finally to New York, following whatever job or promotion her father chased after. Lisa hated these moves and realized later that she resented her mother for never objecting to them. Every couple of years, Lisa would be packed up and shipped like baggage to a strange new city where she would attend a new school with strange new students. Years later, she would recount these experiences to her therapist as feeling like a kidnapped victim or a slave. By the time the family arrived in New York, Lisa was in high school. She vowed never to make another friend so she would never have to say goodbye again. The family moved into a posh home in a posh New York suburb. Sure, the house was bigger and the lawn more manicured, but that didn't come close to compensating for the friendship she left behind. Her father rarely came home in the evenings, and when he did, it was late and he would start drinking and railing against Lisa and her mother for doing nothing all day. When her father drank too much, he became violent, sometimes hitting the kids harder than he intended. The most frightening time of all was when he was drunk and their mother was spaced out on pain pills, and there was no one to take care of the family, except Lisa, and she hated it. In 2000, everything started coming apart. Somehow, her father's firm, or her father himself, she was never sure which, lost everything when the stock market crashed. Her father was suddenly in danger of losing his job, and if he did, the Barlows would have to move again to a smaller house in a less desirable neighborhood. He seemed to blame his family, and especially Lisa. And then, on a clear, bright morning in September 2001, Lisa came downstairs to find her father lying on the sofa, tears streaming down his cheeks. Had it not been for a hangover from a drinking bout the night before, he would have been killed in his office in the World Trade Center. For months afterward, her father was helpless and so was her mother. They eventually divorced six months later. During this period, Lisa felt lost and isolated. It was similar to the way she felt in biology class when she'd look around the room and observe the other kids squinting into their microscopes, taking notes, apparently knowing exactly what to do while she became queasy, not quite understanding what was expected of her, and feeling too scared to ask for help. After a while, she just stopped trying. In high school, she began to hang out with the wrong kids. She made sure her parents saw them in their freaky outfits. 
The bodies of many of her friends were covered, almost literally, with tattoos and body piercings, and the local tattoo parlor became a second home for Lisa as well. Because her father insisted she couldn't make it as a doctor, Lisa went into nursing. At her first hospital job, she met a free spirit who wanted to bring his nursing expertise to underprivileged areas. Lisa was enthralled by him, and they married soon after meeting. His habitual social drinking became more pronounced as the months went by, and he began hitting her. Bruised and battered, Lisa still felt it was her fault. She just wasn't good enough, couldn't make him happy. She had no friends, she said, because he wouldn't let her have any, but deep down she knew it was due more to her own fears of closeness. She was relieved when he finally left her. She had wanted the split, but couldn't cut the cord herself. But after the relief came, fear... Now what do I do? Between the divorce settlement and her salary, Lisa had enough money to return to school. This time she was determined to be a doctor, and much to her father's shock, was accepted into medical school. She was starting to feel good again, valued and respected. But then while she was in medical school, the self-doubts returned. Her supervisor said she was too slow, clumsy with simple procedures, disorganized. They criticized her for not ordering the right tests or getting lab results back in time. Only with the patients did she feel comfortable. With them, she could be whoever she needed to be. Kind and compassionate when that was needed, confrontational and demanding when that was called for. Lisa also experienced a great deal of prejudice in medical school. She was older than most of the other students. She had a much different background, and she was a woman. Many of the patients called her nurse. Some of the male patients didn't want no lady doctor. She was hurt and angry because, like her parents, society and its institutions had also robbed her of her dignity. The Disintegrating Culture Psychological theories take on a different dimension when looked upon in the light of the culture and time period from which they emanate. At the turn of the century, for instance, when Freud was formulating the system that would become the foundation of modern psychiatric thought, the cultural context was a formally structured Victorian society. His theory that the primary origins of neuroses were the representation of unacceptable thoughts and feelings, aggressive and especially sexual, was entirely logical in this strict social context. Now over a century later, aggressive and sexual instincts are expressed more openly, and the social milieu is much more confused. What it means to be a man or woman is much more ambiguous in modern Western civilization than in the early 20th century Europe. Social, economic, and political structures are less fixed, the family unit and cultural roles are less defined, and the very concept of traditional is unclear. Though social factors may not be direct causes of BPD or other forms of mental illness, they are at the very least important indirect influences. Social factors interact with BPD in several ways and cannot be overlooked. First, if borderline pathology originates early in life and much of the evidence points in this direction, an increase in the pathology is likely tied to the changing social patterns of family structure and parent-child interaction. In this regard, it is worthwhile to examine social changes in the area of child-raising patterns, stability of home life, and child abuse and neglect. Second, social changes of a more general nature have an exacerbated effect on people already suffering from the borderline syndrome. The lack of structure in American society, for example, is especially difficult for borderline individuals to handle since they typically have immense problems creating structure for themselves. Women's shifting role patterns, career versus homemaker, for example, tend to aggravate identity problems. Indeed, some researchers partly attribute the prominence of BPD, diagnosed more frequently in women, to this social role conflict, 
now so widespread in our society. The increased severity of BPD in these cases may in turn be transmitted to future generations through parent-child interactions, multiplying the effects over time. Third, the growing recognition of personality disorders in general, and a borderline personality more specifically, may be seen as a natural and inevitable response to, or an expression of, our contemporary culture. As Christopher Lasch noted in The Culture of Narcissism, every society reproduces its culture, its norms, its underlying assumptions, its modes of organizing experience, in the individual, in the form of personality. As Durkheim said, personality is the individual socialized. For many, American culture has lost contact with the past and remains unconnected to the future. A flood of technological advancement and information that swept over the late 20th and early 21st centuries, much of it involving personal computers, cell phones, the internet, and so on, often requires greater individual commitment to solitary study and practice, thus sacrificing opportunities for real social interaction. Indeed, the preoccupation, some would say obsession, with computers and other digital gadgetry, especially among the young on social media, may be resulting, ironically, in more self-absorption and less physical interaction. Texting, blogging, posting, and tweeting all avoid eye contact, or indeed any real-time face-to-face contact of any kind. Solitary reflection is sacrificed upon the altar of FOMO, fear of missing out. Increasing divorce rates and greater geographical mobility have all contributed to a society that lacks constancy and reliability. Baby boomers were the last generation to grow up who typically attended the same schools and churches their parents attended. They are the last generation surrounded by relatives and long-term neighbors. In today's world of frequent moves, intimate, lasting personal relationships become difficult or even impossible to achieve, and deep-seated loneliness, self-absorption, emptiness, anxiety, depression, and loss of self-esteem ensue. The borderline syndrome represents a pathological response to these stresses. Without outside sources of stability and validation of worthiness, borderline symptoms of black and white thinking, self-destructiveness, extreme mood changes, impulsivity, tumultuous relationships, an impaired sense of identity, and anger become understandable reactions to our culture's tensions. Borderline traits, which may be present to some extent in many people, are being elicited, perhaps even bred on a wide scale, by the prevailing social conditions. New York Times writer Louis Sass put it this way, Each culture probably needs its own scapegoats as expressions of society's ills. Just as the hysterics of Freud's day exemplified the sexual repression of that era, the borderline, whose identity is split into many pieces, represents the fracturing of stable units in our society. Though conventional wisdom presumes the borderline pathology has increased over the last few decades, some psychiatrists believe that the symptoms were just as common early in the 20th century. They claim that the change is not in the prevalence of the disorder, but in the fact that it is now officially identified and defined, and therefore simply diagnosed more frequently. Even some of Freud's early cases, scrutinized in the light of current criteria, might be diagnosed today as borderline personalities. This possibility, however, by no means diminishes the importance of the growing number of borderline patients who are ending up in psychiatrists' office and the growing recognition of borderline characteristics in the general population. In fact, the major reason that it has been identified and covered so widely in the clinical and popular literature is its prevalence in both therapeutic settings and the general culture. The Breakdown of Structure, a Fragmented Society 
Few would dispute the notion that American society has become more fragmented since the end of World War II. Family structures in place for decades, the nuclear family, the extended family, one-wage earner households, geographic stability, have been replaced by a wide assortment of patterns, movements, and trends. Divorce rates have soared. Alcohol and drug abuse, as evidenced by methamphetamine and opioid epidemics in the 2010s, and reports of child neglect and abuse have skyrocketed. Crime, terrorism, and political violence have become widespread. Mass school shootings, previously rare aberrations, have sadly become in some schools as common as fire drills. Periods of economic uncertainty, exemplified in roller coaster boom and bust scenarios, have become the rule, not the exception. Some of these changes may be related to society's failure to achieve a kind of social reproachment. As noted in Chapter 3, during the separation individuation phase, the infant ventures cautiously away from mother but returns to her reassuring warmth, familiarity, and acceptance. Disruption of this reproachment cycle often results in a lack of trust, disturbed relationships, emptiness, anxiety, and an uncertain self-image, characteristics that comprise the borderline syndrome. Similarly, it may be seen that contemporary culture interferes with a healthy social reproachment by obstructing access to comforting anchors. At no time has this disruption been more evident than in the first decades of the 21st century, racked by economic collapse, recession, loss of jobs, foreclosures, pandemic-required isolation, and so on. In most areas of the country, the need for two incomes to maintain an acceptable standard of living forces many parents to relinquish parenting duties to others. Paid parental leave or on-site daycare for new parents is still relatively rare and almost always limited. Jobs as well as economic and social pressures encourage frequent moves and this geographical mobility in turn removes us from our stabilizing roots as it did in Lisa's family. We are losing, or have already lost, the comforts of supportive nearby family and consistent social roles. When the accoutrements of custom disappear, they may be replaced by a sense of abandonment, of being adrift in uncharted waters. Our children lack a sense of history and belonging of an anchored presence in the world. To establish a sense of control and comforting familiarity in an alienating society, the individual may resort to a wide range of pathological behavior, substance addiction, eating disorders, criminal behaviors, and so on. Society's failure to provide reproachment with reassuring, stabilizing bonds is reflected in the relentless series of sweeping societal movements over the past 50 years. We pinballed from the explosive, other-directed fight for social justice we decade of the 1960s, to the narcissistic me decade of the 1970s, to the materialistic lookout for number one we decade of the 1980s. The relatively prosperous and stable 1990s was followed by two turbulent decades, 2000 through 2020, periods of financial boom and bust, natural catastrophes, viral pandemics, prolonged wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and socio-political movements bring us almost full circle back to the 1960s. One of the big losers in these tectonic shifts has been group loyalties, a devotion to family, neighborhood, church, occupation, and country, as society continues to foster detachment from people and institutions that provide reassuring reproachment. Individuals are responding in ways that virtually define the borderline syndrome, decreased sense of validated identity, worsening interpersonal relationships, isolation and loneliness, boredom, and impulsivity. Like the world of those with borderline personality, ours is in many ways 
a world of massive contradictions. We presume we believe in peace, yet our streets, schools, movies, television, video games, and sports are filled with aggression and violence. We are a nation virtually founded on the principle of help thy neighbor, yet we have become one of the most politically conservative, self-absorbed, and materialistic societies in the history of humankind. Assertiveness and action are encouraged. Reflection and introspection are equated with weakness and incompetency. Contemporary social forces implore us to embrace a mythical polarity, black or white, right or wrong, good or bad, guilty or innocent, relying on our nostalgia for simpler times, for our own childhoods. The political system presents candidates who adopt polar stances. I'm right, the other guy's wrong. America is good, the Soviet Union is the evil empire, and Iran, Iraq, and North Korea are the axis of evil. Today, politics in the United States and Europe is more polarized than it has ever been. Religious factions exhort us to believe that theirs is the only route to salvation. The legal system, built on the premise that one is either guilty or not guilty, with little or no room for gray areas, perpetuates the myth that life is intrinsically fair and justice can be attained. That is, when something bad does happen, it necessarily follows that it is someone else's fault and that person should pay. The flood of information and leisure alternatives makes it difficult to establish priorities in living. Ideally, we as individuals and as a society attempt to achieve a balance between nurturing the body and the mind, between work and leisure, between altruism and self-interest, but in an increasingly materialistic society, it is a small step from assertiveness to aggressiveness, from individualism to alienation and isolation, from self-preservation to self-absorption. The ever-growing reverence for technology has led to an obsessive pursuit of precision. Calculators replaced memorized multiplication tables and slide rules, and then were replaced by computers, which have become omnipresent in almost every aspect of our lives. Our cars, our appliances, our cell phones, running whatever machine or device they're a part of. The microwave relieves adults from the chore of cooking. Velcro absolves children from having to learn how to tie shoelaces. Creativity and intellectual diligence are sacrificed to convenience and precision. All these attempts to impose order and fairness on a naturally random and unfair universe endorse the borderline individual's futile struggle to choose only black or white, right or wrong, good or bad. But the world is neither intrinsically fair nor exact. It is composed of subtleties that require less simplistic approaches. A healthy civilization can accept the uncomfortable ambiguities. Attempts to eradicate or ignore uncertainty tend only to encourage a borderline society ripped apart by polarizations. We would be naive to believe that the cumulative effect of all this change, the excruciating pull of opposing forces, has had no effect on our psyches. In a sense, we all live in a kind of borderland between the prosperous, healthy, high-technology America on the one hand and the underbelly of poverty, homelessness, drug abuse, and mental illness on the other. Between the dream of a sane, safe, secure world and the insane nightmare of nuclear holocaust or a catastrophic climate event. The price tag of social change has arrived in the form of stress and stress-related physical disorders such as heart attacks, strokes, hypertension, and diabetes. We must now confront the possibility that mental illness has become part of the psychological price. Dread of the Future Over the past five decades, therapeutic settings have seen a basic change in defining psychopathology, from symptom neuroses to character disorders. 
As far back as 1975, psychiatrist Peter L. Giovacini wrote, Clinicians are constantly faced with the seemingly increasing number of patients who do not fit current diagnostic categories. They suffer not from definitive symptoms, but from vague, ill-defined complaints. When I refer to this type of patient, practically everyone knows to whom I am referring. Beginning in the 1980s, such reports have become commonplace, as personality disorders have replaced classical neurosis as a prominent pathology. Which social and cultural factors have influenced this change in pathology? Many, including Lash, believing that one factor is our devaluation of the past. To live for the moment is the prevailing passion. To live for yourself, not for your predecessors or posterity. We are fast losing the sense of historical continuity, the sense of belonging to a succession of generations originating in the past and stretching into the future. The loss of historical continuity reaches both backward and forward. Devaluation of the past breaks the perceptual link to the future, which becomes a huge unknown, a source of dread as much as hope, a vast quicksand from which it becomes incredibly difficult to extricate oneself. Time is perceived as isolated snapshot points instead of as a continuous logical string of events influenced by past achievement, present action, and hopeful anticipation of the future. The looming possibility of a catastrophic event, the threat of nuclear annihilation, another massive terrorist attack like 9-11, environmental destruction due to global warming, global pandemics, and so on, contributes to our lack of faith in the past and our dread of the future. Empirical studies with adolescents and children consistently show awareness of the danger, hopelessness about surviving, a shortened time perspective, and pessimism about being able to reach life goals. Suicide is mentioned again and again as a strategy for dealing with the threat. Other studies have found that the threat of world catastrophe rushes children to a kind of early adulthood, similar to the type witnessed in pre-borderline children, who are forced to take control of families that are out of control due to BPD, alcoholism, and other mental disorders. Many U.S. youth ages 14 to 22 expect to die before age 30, according to a 2008 study published in the Journey of Adolescent Health. About 1 out of 15 young people, 6.7%, express such unrealistic fatalism, the study concludes. The findings are based on four years of survey data totaling 4,201 adolescents conducted between 2002 and 2005 by the Health and Risk Communication Institute of the Annenberg Public Policy Center. With an increase in the suicide rate for 10 to 24-year-olds, suicide is the second leading cause of death in this age group. Over half a century ago, the WHO sang, I hope I die before I get old. That sentiment among the young may well endure. The prevalence of mass school shootings in the first two decades of the 21st century has increased dread of the future, especially among adolescents and children. The borderline individual, as we have seen, personifies this orientation to the now. With little interest in the past, he is almost a cultural amnesiac. His cupboard of warm memories is bare. As a result, he is doomed to suffer torment with no breathers, no cache of memories of happier times to get him through the tough periods. Unable to learn from his mistakes, he is doomed to repeat them. Parents who feared the future are not likely to be engrossed by the needs of the next generation. A modern parent, emotionally detached and alienated, yet at the same time pampering and overindulgent, becomes a likely candidate to mold future borderline personalities, 
The Jungle of Interpersonal Relationships Perhaps the hallmark social changes over the last 70 years have come in the area of sexual mores, roles, and practices, from the suppressed sexuality of the 1950s to the free love and open marriage trends of the 1960s sexual revolution, to the massive sexual reevaluation in the 1980s, to the gay and lesbian movements over the last two decades. The massive proliferation of dating and hookup sites on social media has made it easy to establish personal contact that the old brick-and-mortar pickup bar has become increasingly irrelevant. Innocent or illicit romantic or sexual relationships can now be initiated with a few keyboard strokes or a text message. The jury is out on whether cyberspace has civilized the world of interpersonal relationships or turned it into a more dangerous jungle than it ever was. As a result of these and other societal forces, deep and lasting friendships, love affairs, and marriages have become increasingly difficult to achieve and maintain. 60% of marriages for couples between the ages of 20 and 25 end in divorce. The number is 50% for those over 25. Even back in 1982, Lash noted that as social life becomes more and more warlike and barbaric, personal relations, which ostensibly provide relief from those conditions, take on the character of combat. Ironically, borderline individuals may be well suited for this kind of combat. The narcissistic man's need to dominate and be idolized fits well with the borderline woman's ambivalent need to be controlled and punished. Some borderline women, as we saw with Lisa at the start of this chapter, marry at a young age to escape the chaos of family life. They cling to dominating husbands with whom they recreate the miasma of home life. Both may enter a kind of slap Thanks, I needed that. Sadomasochistic dyad. Less typical, but still common, is a reversal of these roles, with a borderline male linked with a narcissistic female partner. Masochism is a prominent characteristic of borderline relationships. Dependency coupled with pain elicits the familiar refrain, love hurts. In childhood, the borderline adult has often experienced pain and confusion in trying to establish a maturing relationship with his mother or primary caregiver. Later in life, other partners, spouse, friends, teacher, employer, minister, doctor, renew this early confusion. Criticism or abuse particularly reinforces his self-image of worthlessness. Lisa's later relationships with her husband and supervisors, for example, recapitulated the profound feelings of worthlessness ingrained by her father's constant criticisms. Sometimes borderline masochistic suffering transforms into sadism, for example, Anne would sometimes encourage her husband Liam to drink, knowing about his drinking problem. Then she would instigate a fight, fully aware of Liam's violent propensities when drunk. Following a beating, Anne would wear her bruises like war medals, reminding Liam of his violence, and would insist they go out in public where Anne would explain away her marks as accidents, such as running into doors. After each episode, Liam would feel profoundly regretful and humiliated, while Anne would present herself as a long-suffering martyr. In this way, Anne used her beatings to exact punishment from Liam. The identification of the real victim in this relationship becomes increasingly vague. Even when a relationship is apparently ruptured, the borderline suffers from crawling back for more punishment, feeling he deserves the denigration. The punishment is comfortably familiar, easier to cope with than the frightening prospect of solitude or a different partner. A typical scenario for modern relationships is a pattern of overlapping lovers, sometimes referred to as shingling, establishing a new romance before severing a current one. 
BPD exemplifies this constant need for partnership as she climbs the jungle gem of relationships. She cannot let go of the lower bar until she has firmly grasped the next one. Typically, she will not leave her current abusive spouse until a new white knight is at least visible on the horizon. Periods of relaxed socio-sexual mores and less structured romantic relationships are more difficult for individuals with BPD to handle. Increased freedom and lack of structure paradoxically imprison those who are severely handicapped and devastating their own individual systems of values. Conversely, the sexual withdrawal period of the late 1980s was often ironically therapeutic for those with BPD. Social fears enforce strict boundaries that can be crossed only at the risk of great physical harm. Impulsivity and promiscuity now have severe penalties in the form of STDs, violent sexual deviance, and so on. This external structure can help protect him from his own self-destructiveness. Shifting gender role patterns. Earlier in the last century, social roles were fewer, more well-defined, and much more easily combined. Mother was domestic, working in the home, in charge of the children. Mother's outside interests, such as school involvement, hobbies, and charity work, flowed naturally from these duties. Father's work and community visibility also combined smoothly, and together their roles worked synchronously. The complexities of modern society, however, dictate that the individual develop a plethora of social roles, many of which do not combine so easily. The working mother, for example, has two distinct roles and must struggle to perform both well. Most employers insist that the working mom keep the home and workplace separate. As a result, many mothers feel guilty or embarrassed when problems from one impact the other. A working father also finds work and home roles compartmentalized. He is no longer the owner of the local grocery who lives above the store. More likely, he works miles from home and has much less time to be with his family. What's more, the modern dad plays an increasingly participatory role with heavy familial responsibility. For both parents, the increasing preference to work from home, a skyrocketing trend in the era of COVID-19, has caused more strain on managing work and parenting obligations. Shifting roles over the last several decades are central to theories on why BPD is identified more commonly in women. In the past, a woman had essentially one life course, getting married, having children, staying in the home to raise those children, and repressing any career ambitions. Today, in contrast, a young woman is faced with a bewildering array of role models and expectations. From the single career woman, to the married career woman, to the traditional nurturing mother, to the super mom who strives to combine marriage, career, and children successfully. Men are also expected to take on new roles, of course, but not nearly so wide-ranging nor conflicting as those women. In previous generations, a father who took time away from work to watch his daughter's volleyball game would have prepared to be shirking his commitment to provide for his family. Today, men are expected to be more sensitive and open and to take a larger part in child raising than in previous eras. Yet these qualities and responsibilities usually fit within the overall role of provider or co-provider. It is the rare man who, for example, abandons career ambitions to take on the role of house husband, nor is this usually expected of him. Men have fewer adjustments to make during the evolution of relationships and marriages. For example, relocations are usually dictated by the man's career needs, since he is most often the primary wage earner. Throughout pregnancy, birth, and child-rearing, few changes occur in the, in the man's day-to-day -day reality. 
Not only does the woman have to endure the physical demands of pregnancy and childbirth and have to leave her job to give birth, but she also must make the transition back to work or give up her career. And yet in many dual earner households, although it may not be openly stated, the woman simply assumes the primary responsibility for the maintenance of the home. She is the one who usually adjusts her plans to stay home with a sick child or wait for the repairman to come. Though women have struggled successfully to achieve increased social and career options, they may be forced to pay an exacting price in the process. Even though it's widely accepted that women can both be excellent mothers and work, traditional expectations can still cause pressure in the form of excruciating life decisions about career, families, and children. Strange on their relationship with their children and husband, the stress resulting from making and living with these decisions, and confusion about who they are and who they want to be. From this perspective, it is understandable that women should be more closely associated with BPD, a disorder in which identity and role confusion are such central components. A major change in the very concept of marriage has added to the confusion. The traditional Judeo-Christian norm of marriage between a man and a woman has been significantly challenged over the last 20 years. Not only in religious discussions, but also in the political and social arenas. In 2004, Americans opposed the same-sex marriage by a margin of 60 to 31 percent. Based on polling in 2019, public opinion has flipped. A majority of Americans, 61 percent, support same-sex marriage, while 31 percent oppose it. Mirroring public opinion, bans on same-sex marriage in 13 U.S. states were struck down as unconstitutional in 2015 by the Supreme Court ruling in Obergefell v. Hodges. The recognition and legalization of same-sex marriage, however, has fueled public debate rather than diffusing it. Over the past decade, homosexuality in general and same-sex marriage in specific have emerged as central issues in the extreme polarization of the country. Sexual Orientation and BPD Sexual orientation may also play a part in borderline role confusion. For centuries, homosexuality has been a controversial if not downright explosive issue. Running the gamut from acceptance, to minor sin, to condemnation and illegality, to prohibition under penalty of death, depending on the society and the era. As recently as the 1980s, homosexuality was deemed to be a psychiatric disorder until the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual removed all the references to it in 1987. In parallel with the social turmoil for gay, lesbian, or transgender people, the personal decision to come out of the closet is usually ridden with anxiety and the potential of severe social and or family repercussions. Yet the social context has changed. According to recent surveys, 7% of millennials self-identify as gay as opposed to 3.5% in 2011. Transsexualism has added more ambiguity to the understanding of what defines maleness and femaleness. As one of the criteria of BPD diagnosis, identity confusion is always a significant concern. Some have demanded changes in how pronouns describe them, rejecting identification as him or her. They prefer to be referred to as the gender-neutral them. The increasing ambiguity about identity and sexuality, and indeed about what constitutes normality, is especially impactful for borderline individuals. The increasing ambiguity about identity and sexuality, and indeed about what constitutes normality, is especially impactful for borderline individuals. Increasingly intense debate between conservative evangelical and religious organizations and liberal LGBTQ and pro-choice supporters causes more anxiety for those borderline individuals still trying to establish a firm sense of identity 
and to develop stable relationships. Family and child rearing patterns. Since the end of World War II, our society has experienced striking changes in family and child rearing patterns. The institution of the nuclear family has been in steady decline. Largely due to divorce, half of all American children born in the 1990s spent part of their childhood in a single-parent home. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, between 1960 and 2016, the percentage of children living with two parents dipped from 88% to 69%, and in 6% of those households, the two parents were not married. During that interval, children living with only their mother almost tripled, from 8% to 23%. In 2016, 4% of children lived only with their father. A more recent Pew Research study confirmed that 23% of children under 18 years of age in the U.S. were living with a single parent compared to 7% in the rest of the world. Alternative family structures have led to situations in which many children are raised by persons other than their birth parents. Due to increased geographical mobility, among other factors, the traditional extended family with grandparents, siblings, cousins, and other family relations living in close proximity is almost extinct, leaving the nuclear family virtually unsupported. The number of women working outside the home has increased dramatically. 40% of working women are mothers of children under age 18. 71% of all single mothers are employed. As a result of women working outside the home, more children than ever before are being placed in various forms of daycare and at a much earlier age. The number of infants in daycare increased 45% during the 1980s. The evidence clearly suggests that the incidence of child neglect and physical and sexual abuse increased significantly over the last years of the 20th century. What are the psychological effects of the child-rearing changes on both children and parents? Psychiatrists and developmental experts generally agree that children growing up in settings marked by turmoil, instability, or abuse are at much greater risk for emotional and mental problems in adolescence and adulthood. Moreover, parents in such environments are much more likely to develop stress, guilt, depression, lower self-esteem, all characteristics associated with BPD. Please do not misunderstand. We do not mean to say that single-parent homes and homes with two working parents are in any way inferior to traditional nuclear families, especially in the area of fostering mental illness. The evidence simply does not support that claim. In fact, today only a minority of American households are traditionally two-parent nuclear families, and only a third of American individuals live in this kind of family structure. Millions of parents in non-nuclear family situations are able to cope with, or even thrive in, the emotional and financial stress of divorce, or the desire of both parents to pursue their jobs and careers, or out of simple economic necessity. Though there is no evidence that the increase in daycare has led to an increase in mental illness or child abuse, affordable quality daycare to support working parents has lagged far behind the needs of working parent households. The same goes for children growing up in these situations. Indeed, a single-parent home or a home with two working parents is often a vast improvement over the unhappy, turbulent situation it replaced. What we are suggesting is that parents and children in these family structures should anticipate the possible associated stress and develop coping skills to handle it through reading, counseling, therapy, advice from family and friends, and so on. Child Abuse and Neglect, Destroyer of Trust Child abuse and neglect have become significant health problems. In 2007, about 5.8 million children were involved in an estimated 3.2 million child abuse reports and allegations in the United States. 
Some studies estimate that 25% of girls experience some form of sexual abuse by the time they reach adulthood. Characteristics or physically abused preschool-aged children include inhibition, depression, attachment difficulties, behavior problems, poor impulse control, aggressiveness, and peer relation problems. Violence begets violence, said John Lennon, and this is particularly true in the case of battered children, because those who are abused often become abusers themselves. This problem can self-perpetuate over many decades and generations. In fact, about 30% of abused and neglected children will later abuse their own children, continuing the vicious cycle. The incidence of abuse or neglect among borderline patients is high enough to be a factor that separates BPD from other personality disorders. Verbal or psychological abuse is the most common form, followed by physical and then sexual abuse. Physical and sexual abuse may be more dramatic in nature, but the emotionally abused child can suffer total loss of self-esteem. Emotional child abuse can take several forms. Degradation, constantly devaluing the child's achievements and magnifying misbehavior. After a while, the child becomes convinced that he really is bad or worthless. Unavailability, neglect. Psychologically absent parents show little interest in the child's development and provide no affection in times of need. Domination. Use of extreme threats to control the child's behavior. Some child development experts have compared this form of abuse to the techniques used by terrorists to brainwash captives. Recall from Lisa's story that she probably suffered all of these forms of emotional abuse. Her father hammered her constantly that she was not good enough. Her mother rarely stood up for Lisa, almost always deferring to her husband in all important decisions. And Lisa perceived the family's numerous relocations as kidnappings. The pattern of the neglected child as described by psychologist Hugh Misseldine mirrors the dilemmas of borderline patients in later life. If you suffered from neglect in childhood, it may cause you to go from one person to another, hoping that someone will supply whatever is missing. You may not be able to care much about yourself and think marriage will end this, and then find yourself in the alarming situation of being married but emotionally unattached. Moreover, the person who has neglect in his background is always restless and anxious because he cannot obtain emotional satisfaction. These restless, impulsive moves help to create the illusion of living emotionally. Such a person may, for example, be engaged to be married to one person and simultaneously be maintaining sexual relationships with two or three others. Anyone who offers admiration and respect has appeal to them, and because their need for affection is so great, their ability to discriminate is severely impaired. From what we understand of the roots of BPD, abuse, neglect, or prolonged separations early in childhood can greatly disrupt the developing infant's establishment of trust. Self-esteem and autonomy are crippled. The abilities to cope with separation and to form identity do not proceed normally. As they become adults, abused children may recapitulate frustrating relationships with others. Pain and punishment may become associated with closeness. They come to believe that love hurts. As the borderline child or adolescent matures, self-mutilation may become the proxy of the abusive parent. Children of Divorce, the Disappearing Father Due primarily to divorce, more children than ever before are being raised without the physical and or emotional presence of their father. Because most courts award children to the mother in custody cases and large majority of single-parent homes are headed by mothers, even in cases of joint custody or liberal visitation rights, the father, who is more likely to remarry sooner after divorce and start a new family, often fades from the child's upbringing. 
The recent trend in child raising toward a more equal sharing of parental responsibilities between mother and father makes subsequent divorce even more upsetting for the child. Children clearly benefit from dual parenting, but they also lose more when the marriage dissolves, especially if the breakup occurs during the formative years when the child still has many crucial developmental stages to go through. Studies on the effects of divorce typically report profound upset, neediness, regression, and acute separation anxiety related to fears of abandonment in children of preschool age. A significant number are found to be depressed or antisocial in later stages of childhood. Indeed, teens living in single-parent families are not only more likely to commit suicide, but also more likely to suffer from psychological disorders when compared to teens living in intact families. During separation and divorce, the child's need for physical intimacy increases. For example, it is typical for a young child at the time of separation to ask a parent to sleep with him. If the practice continues and sleeping in the same bed becomes the parent's need as well, the child's own sense of autonomy and bodily integrity may be threatened. This, combined with the loneliness and severe narcissistic injury caused by the divorce, places some children at high risk for developmental arrest if the need for affection and reassurance becomes desperate for sexual abuse. Father separated from the home may demand more time with the child in order to relieve his own feelings of loneliness and deprivation. If the child becomes a lightning rod for the father's resentment and bitterness, he may again be at higher risk for abuse. In many situations of parental separation, the child becomes the pawn in a destructive battle between his parents. Han, a divorced father who usually ignored his visitation privileges, suddenly demanded that his daughter stay with him whenever he was angry at her mother. These visits were usually unpleasant for the child, as well as for her father and his new family, yet were used as punishment for his ex-wife, who would feel guilty and powerless at his demands. Isabella became embroiled in conflicts between her divorced parents when her mother periodically took her father back to court to extract more money for child support. Bribes of material gifts or threats to cut off support for school or home maintenance are common weapons used between continuously skirmishing parents. The bribes and threats are usually more harmful to the children than they are to the parents. Children may even be drawn into court battles and forced to testify about their parents. In these situations, neither the parents nor the courts nor the relevant social welfare organizations can protect the child who is often left with a sense of overwhelming helplessness or of intoxicating power. He may feel enraged at his predicament and yet fearful that he could be abandoned by everyone. All of this becomes fertile ground for the development of borderline pathology. In addition to divorce, other powerful societal forces have contributed to the absent father syndrome. The past half century has witnessed the maturing of children of thousands of war veterans, World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and conflicts in the Persian Gulf, Iraq, and Afghanistan, not to mention many survivors of concentration and prison camps. Not only were many of these fathers absent during significant portions of their children's development, but many were found to develop post-traumatic stress disorders and delayed mourning related to combat that also influenced child development. By 1970, 40% of World War II and Korean War POWs had met violent death by suicide or auto accident. The same trend has continued with vets of the Iraq War and later combat. According to U.S. Army figures, five soldiers per day tried to commit suicide in 2007, compared to less than one per day before the war. Children of the Holocaust survivors often have severe emotional difficulties rooted in their parents' massive psychic trauma. The absent father syndrome can lead to pathological consequences. 
Often in families torn by divorce or death, the mother tries to compensate by becoming the ideal parent, arranging every aspect of her child's life. Naturally, the child has limited opportunity to develop his own identity. Without the buffering of another parent, the mother-child link can be too close to allow for healthy separating. Though the mother often seeks to replace the missing father in many cases, it is actually the child who tries to replace the absent father. In the absence of the father, the symbiotic intensity of the bond with the mother is greatly magnified. The child grows up with an idealized view of the mother and fantasies of forever trying to please her. And a parent's dependence on the child may persist, interfering with growth and individuation, planting the seeds of BPD. Permissive Child Rearing Practices Modern permissive child-rearing practices involving the transfer of traditional parental functions to outside agencies, the school, mass media, industry, have significantly altered the quality of parent-child relationships. Parental instinct has been supplanted by reliance on books and child-rearing experts. Child-rearing in many households takes a backseat to the demands of dual careers. Quality time becomes a guilt-induced euphemism for not enough time. Many parents overcompensate by lavishing attention on the child's practical and recreational needs, yet providing little real warmth. Narcissistic parents perceive their children as extensions of themselves, or as objects-slash-possessions, rather than as separate human beings. As a result, the child suffocates in emotionally distant attention, leading to an exaggerated sense of his own importance, regressive defenses, and loss of a sense of self. Geographic mobility. Where is home? We are moving more than ever before. Greater geographical mobility can bring rich educational benefits and cultural exchange for a child, but numerous relocations are often accompanied by a feeling of rootlessness. Some investigators have found that children who move frequently and stay in one place for only short periods of time often have confused responses or no response at all to the simple question, where is your home? Because hypermobility is typically correlated with career-oriented lifestyles and job demands, one or both parents in mobile families tend to work long hours and so are less available to their offspring. For children who have few constants in their environment to provide ballast for development, mobility adds another disruptive force. The world turns into a menagerie of changing places and faces. Such children may grow up bored and lonely, looking for constant stimulation, continually forced to adapt to new situations and people. They may lose the stable sense of self-encouraged by secure community anchors. Though socially graceful, like Lisa, they typically feel they are gracefully faking it. Increasing geographical mobility weakens the stability of the neighborhood, community school systems, church and civic institutions, and friendships. Traditional affiliations are lost. About 44% of Americans profess affinity to a different church from the one in which they were raised. Generations are becoming separated by long distances, and the extended family is lost for emotional support and child care. Children are raised without knowing their grandparents, aunts, uncles, and cousins, losing a strong connection to the past and a source of love and warmth to nurture healthy emotional growth. The Rise of the Faux Family As society fragments, marriages dissolve, and families break up, the faux family, or virtual community, often replaces real communities of the past. This yearning for tribal affiliation manifests in a variety of ways. Football fans identify themselves as Raider Nation. Hordes of people wait for hours each week to vote for their favorite American idol, simply to be part of a larger group with a common purpose. 
and millions of young people join Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Snapchat, and Twitter to be a member of a vast electronic social network. Sixty years ago, in his novel, Cat's Cradle, Kurt Vonnegut playfully called these connections a grand faloon, a group of people who choose or claim to have a shared identity or purpose, but whose mutual association is actually meaningless. The author offered two examples, the Daughters of the American Revolution and the General Electric Company. If Vonnegut wrote the novel today, the examples would just as easily be huge swaths of Facebook or Twitter users. Since 2003, social networking sites have rocketed from a niche activity into a phenomenon that engages tens of millions of internet users. In 2007, more than half of all online American youths, ages 12 to 17, used online social networking sites. In 2008, according to a recent study by the Pew Research Center, 90% of teens say they go online almost constantly or several times a day. The initial evidence suggests that teens use these sites primarily to communicate, to stay in touch with and make plans with friends, and to make new friends. However, the motivation may not be this benign. For example, a study by Microsoft found that ego is the largest driver of participation. People contribute to increase their social, intellectual, and cultural capital. Twitter, among most popular electronic rages to sweep the nation, is unabashed in its narcissistic bent. An instant text messaging service, tweeting is intended to announce what I'm doing or what I'm thinking to a group of followers. There is little pretense that the communication is intended to be a two-way street. Few would dispute the growing narcissism in American culture. Initially documented by Tom Wolfe's landmark article, The Me Decade and the Third Great Awakening, in 1976, and Christopher Lash's Culture of Narcissism in 1979, the narcissistic impulse has been evident since then by a wide assortment of cultural trends. Reality TV turning its participants into instant famous-for-being-famous celebrities, plastic surgeries explosion into a growth industry, indulgent parenting, celebrity worship, lust for material wealth, and now social networking, creating one's own group of faux friends. As John M. Twang and W. Keith Campbell note in The Narcissism Epidemic, the internet brought useful technology, but also the possibility of instant fame and a look-at-me mentality. People strive to create a personal brand, packaging themselves like a product to be sold. The Turbulent Tens, a decade of massive changes. Imagine for a moment that you have traveled back in time to the year 2009. Barack Obama had just been elected president, and he, along with other world leaders and central banks, was trying to pull the world out of the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. About 77% of American population owned a cell phone, of which the vast majority were teenagers, who had purchased one in the last five years. Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube were in their infancies, and Instagram and Snapchat did not even exist. Same-sex marriage was illegal in 45 states. Mass shootings were occurring at the rate of about five per year. The terms tribal politics, cyberbullying, selfie, and emoji had not yet entered the everyday cultural lexicon. Regardless of political ideology, few could argue a decade later that the world has not gone through significant social, cultural, political, technological change. Cell phones have become the primary communication device of our time. Social media is thriving as a primary communication mode, especially among young people. Mass school shootings have become common catastrophic events. There were 194 mass shootings in the 2010s, nearly triple the number from the previous decade. 
polarized conflicts between Democrats and Republicans have frequently led to gridlock in local governments and the U.S. Congress. Most important to this discussion, these societal forces have combined to form, if not the seeds of mental illness, then at least the petri dish in which the germs of anxiety, stress, and mental illness can flourish. According to the recent U.S. studies and surveys, the following have all increased dramatically in the 2010s, especially during the 2016 to 2019 period. Anxiety and stress levels, visits to therapists, and the number of diagnoses of severity of mental disorders. Times have been confusing for everyone, of course, but it's been much more confusing for those afflicted with mental illness in general, and with BPD in particular. Several of the social changes described below strain borderline thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, which is to say the nine BPD criteria, perhaps more than any other mental disorder. The job of the psychotherapist treating BPD has also been made more difficult. Like everyone else, mental health professionals live in the real world, not in a bubble. They are invulnerable to the same societal forces as their patients, and they struggle to understand and navigate them while helping their patients do the same. Extreme Polarization and Tribal Politics Extreme polarization and tribal politics have ramifications far beyond the ballot box. Now more than ever before, posts on social media advocating, for example, gay rights or women's reproductive rights are almost as likely to invite threats of violence or even death as rational disagreement. Indeed, in many cases, the warning signs of mass shootings and high-profile hate crimes were on display in social media postings. In general, legislative bodies, law enforcement agencies, or the platforms themselves have not been diligent about, or incapable of, regulating or monitoring social media sites for this type of criminal behavior, citing free speech, content creation costs, or other reasons. The underlying mantras of tribal politics, we're always right and the other side is always wrong, and we're all good, the other side is all evil, form a societal validation of the borderline person's black or white misperception of himself and those in his immediate orbit, the BPD mechanism known as splitting. When TV news and social media rant about tribal politics on a daily, even hourly basis, it raises an enormous obstacle for the borderline individual struggling with black or white perceptions to handle. Same holds true for the therapist trying to help his borderline patient see the grays in the world. According to recent surveys, 87% of therapists report that they have spoken with their patients about politics, illustrating the pervasiveness of societal polarization, not only in the minds of individuals seeking psychological help, but also among therapists in a setting that traditionally focuses on personal issues. Catastrophic events, mass school shootings, and global pandemics. It should come as no surprise to anyone living in America that the number of mass school shootings and the resultant casualties have soared over the last decade. What may be surprising is the relative dearth of scientific studies concerning the mental health consequences of mass shootings. However, the limited research suggests that mass shooting incidents can lead to an array of mental health problems in members of affected communities and in indirectly exposed populations. The existing research points to an increased prevalence of major depressive disorder. PTSD and generalized anxiety disorder in the shootings immediate aftermath and over the long term in younger societal populations. Like the baby boomers, who as school children were terrorized by drills that instructed them to hide under their desks in case of a nuclear attack, today's children undergo practice evacuations to prepare for armed attacks. For those vulnerable with BPD symptoms, emotions like anxiety and fear are significantly magnified. Global pandemics, such as the coronavirus scourge that, as of this writing, has infected and killed millions of people worldwide, 
may be an even greater source of anxiety for people of all ages than the school shooting epidemic. To combat the pandemic, citizens of all countries were instructed to practice social distancing, and many regions of the world ordered outright lockdowns or shelter-in-place restrictions where social gatherings of any size were banned. Mental health professionals were quick to point out the psychological dangers of social distancing. As people distance themselves socially, we will also be headed for a social recession, said Dr. Vivek Murthy, former U.S. Surgeon General. Loneliness and social isolation are huge problems in our country, leading to shorter lives, high risk of heart disease, diabetes, dementia, depression, anxiety. The U.S. Department of Health Resources and Services Administration was even more blunt. Loneliness can be as damaging as 15 cigarettes a day. Undoubtedly, large portions of the world population experience anxiety, stress, and loneliness during pandemics. But for those afflicted with BPD, isolation and solitude can be excruciatingly more painful, a plague to be avoided as much or more than the virus itself. Isolation can trigger feelings of hopelessness, emptiness, fear of abandonment, and paranoia, all primary criteria of BPD. Adding to this snowball effect, social distancing and stay-at-home edicts over extended periods depress attendance at much-needed group and one-on-one -on -one therapy meetings. Also, if partners or spouses are forced into isolation, in many cases in cramped quarters with their children, it can exacerbate unstable and intense interpersonal relationships and anger, also BPD criteria. As the COVID-19 pandemic is so recent, the long-term effects of prolonged or even short periods of isolation on adults and children are unknown, but future studies are likely to find that the deleterious effects are going to be more lasting for people with BPD or other mental illnesses. Technology, the antisocial social media, identity theft, and hookup havens. History shows that technological innovation is always a double-edged sword. Automation in manufacturing processes leads to increased productivity, but often results in a loss of jobs. Online shopping, banking, and stock investing are incredibly convenient, but also have unhealthy side effects. The closing of local brick-and-mortar businesses, identity theft, criminal digital corruption, the sudden loss of a job, or of one's life savings is horrendous for anyone. But for someone with BPD, such a profound and abrupt life disruption is catastrophic. The internet provides great convenience and accessibility to scholarly research in numerous fields, but also the significant challenge of data unreliability and factual inaccuracy. Social media and dating websites have forged instantaneous connections for millions of people, but have also produced cyberbullying and dangerous liaisons. In fact, much of recent American history can be framed as the inability of governmental, educational, and social institutions to keep up with much less control, technological innovations in such areas as nuclear war weaponry, global warming, mass shootings, and street crime, and negative social interaction. Antisocial media. School bullies have been around as long as schools have existed, of course, but cyberbullying is a relatively new phenomenon that has developed along with social media. According to recent studies, the percentage of youth who experience cyberbullying ranges from 10 to 40% depending on the age group and how cyberbullying is defined. One commonly used definition is an aggressive, intentional act or behavior carried out by a group or individual using electronic forms of contact repeatedly and over time against a victim who cannot easily defend him or herself. Harmful bullying behavior, especially prevalent among teenagers using social media platforms such as Twitter and Facebook, 
but also present on online gaming sites and in text messaging. can include posting rumors, threats, compromising photos, sexual comments, the victim's personal information, or pejorative labels. Victims of cyberbullying typically experience lower self-esteem, increased suicidal ideation and suicide attempts, and a variety of negative feelings, fear, anger, frustration, and depression. It is not difficult to conclude that those with BPD who are already exhibiting many of these symptoms are particularly vulnerable. What's more, considering the conflicting sadistic and masochistic tendencies of BPD, the borderline individual may sometimes adapt to the role of either the bully or the bullied. Identity theft. Though we are repeatedly assured that our personal data will be kept safe and confidential, large-scale data breaches in major corporations, banks, and institutions have happened nevertheless. Yahoo, JP Morgan Chase, Marriott, Target, eBay, and Facebook are just a few of many companies in which the personal data of 50 million or more customers were compromised. Whether through internal snafus, corruption, or the heinous acts of hackers, the cases of identity theft in the United States almost tripled in 2016 compared to 2005. More than a third of victims who spent six months or more resolving financial and credit problems experienced severe emotional distress. Apart from the financial, practical, and emotional distress these thefts caused, there's the psychological toll. For a mentally healthy person, identity theft is quite a blow. For someone with BPD, who is already burdened with a shaky sense of identity, the theft of her identity, or the widespread threat of theft, can be anxiety-provoking at best, devastating at worst. Hookup Havens Memberships in online dating websites such as Match.com, eHarmony, and others have been increasing steadily for 30 years, spurring thousands of new relationships and marriages. Over the years, most members have come to recognize the efficiency benefits afforded by these sites and the hidden risks, namely that the purported dashing 40-year-old millionaire may in real life turn out to be a homely 60-year-old ex-convict living in his mother's basement. A standard protocol among prospective daters has developed over time. Emails, then phone calls, and then meeting for the first time in a public place such as a Starbucks. In short, most single people are aware of the risks, lower their expectations, and take precautions. The emergence of sites often used to find a quick hookup in the 2010s, however, has changed the online dating landscape. To oversimplify, the intent of a hookup app is to quickly arrange a nearby one-night stand by swiping left or right on a photo and brief profile. If things progress after that, so be it, but there are few expectations and even fewer precautions taken in terms of researching or getting to know one's date before meeting in person. Both Tinder and Grindr have grown exponentially worldwide since their inception in 2012 and 2009, respectively. The vast majority of users are 18 to 35 years old. Proportionately, Tinder and Grindr hookups have been linked to violent and nonviolent crime far more often than their traditional dating sites, a trend first noted in the UK and confirmed by studies in the United States. According to several recent studies among college-age people, Tinder users, male and female, have lower self-esteem, more body dissatisfaction, and more mood swings. It is not a huge leap to see the temptation and potential danger of hookup apps for the borderline person prone to impulsivity, promiscuity, 
chronic feelings of emptiness and unstable and intense relationships. Indeed, for the borderline individual, consenting to sexual intimacy may in reality result in playful seduction, cruel manipulation, or destructive exploitation. Microscopic Mind Fields From an early age, we are conditioned by Hollywood to believe that mayhem comes in the form of mammoth monsters like Godzilla, King Kong, the runaway rafters of Jurassic Park, the huge hungry shark in Jaws, or the aliens in War of the Worlds, or massive natural disasters, cyclones, earthquakes, hurricanes, tsunamis, or asteroids, like those shown in Twister, Armageddon, and The Day After Tomorrow, or giant nuclear disasters, bombs, and missiles that hover over the apocalyptic genre in films such as The Road, Dr. Strangelove, or Failsafe. But movies are not the real world, and over the last two decades we have learned that the infinitesimal and intangible can also wreak havoc. Invisible viruses and electronic bites of code, imperceptible pollution agents, and hurtful miscommunication and disinformation, mediated along microscopic brain synapses, can wreak major psychological and physical damage. In tandem with individual action, a modern society must be prepared and willing to spend whatever it takes to protect, prepare, and deal with these invisible societal enemies for the sake of the physical and mental health of its people.